0: Chapter Six, Part Two of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Queen Victoria by Giles Lytton Strachey. Chapter Six, Part Two. Four. An unexpected consequence of the war was a complete change in the relations between the royal pair and Palmerston. The prince and the minister drew together over their hostility to Russia, and thus it came about that when Victoria found it necessary to summon her old enemy to form an administration, she did so without reluctance. The premiership, too, had a sobering effect upon Palmerston. He grew less impatient and dictatorial, considered with attention the suggestions of the crown, and was, besides, genuinely impressed by the prince's ability and knowledge. Friction, no doubt, there still occasionally was, for while the queen and the prince devoted themselves to foreign politics as much as ever, their views, when the war was over, became once more antagonistic to those of the prime minister. This was especially the case with regard to Italy. Albert, theoretically the friend of constitutional government, distrusted Cavour, was horrified by Garibaldi, and dreaded the danger of England being drawn into war with Austria. Palmerston, on the other hand, was eager for Italian independence, but he was no longer at the foreign office, and the brunt of the royal displeasure had now to be borne by Lord John Russell. In a few years the situation had curiously altered. It was Lord John who now filled the subordinate and the ungrateful role, but the Foreign Secretary in his struggle with the Crown was supported instead of opposed by the Prime Minister. Nevertheless, the struggle was fierce, and the policy, by which the vigorous sympathy of England became one of the decisive factors in the final achievement of Italian unity, was only carried through in face of the violent opposition of the Court. Towards the other European storm centre also, The prince's attitude continued to be very different to that of Palmerston. Albert's great wish was for a united Germany under the leadership of a constitutional and virtuous Prussia. Palmerston did not think that there was much to be said for the scheme, but he took no particular interest in German politics and was ready enough to agree to a proposal which was warmly supported by both the prince and the queen that the royal houses of England and Prussia should be united by the marriage of the Princess Royal with the Prussian Crown Prince. Accordingly, when the princess was not yet fifteen, the prince, a young man of twenty-four, came over on a visit to Balmoral, and the betrothal took place. Two years later, in 1857, the marriage was celebrated. At the last moment, however, it seemed that there might be a hitch it was pointed out in Prussia that it was customary for princes of the blood royal to be married in Berlin, and it was suggested that there was no reason why the present case should be treated as an exception. When this reached the ears of Victoria, she was speechless with indignation. In a note, emphatic even for Her Majesty, she instructed the Foreign Secretary to tell the Prussian ambassador not to entertain the possibility of such a question, The Queen never could consent to it, both for public and for private reasons, and the assumption of its being too much for a Prince Royal of Prussia to come over to marry the Princess Royal of Great Britain in England, is too absurd to say the least. Whatever may be the usual practice of Prussian princes, it is not every day that one marries the eldest daughter of the Queen of England. The question must therefore be considered as settled and Closed. It was, and the wedding took place in St. James's Chapel. There were great festivities, illuminations, state concerts, immense crowds and general rejoicings. At Windsor, a magnificent banquet was given to the bride and bridegroom in the Waterloo Room, at which, Victoria noted in her diary, "'Everybody was most friendly and kind about Vicky "'and full of the universal enthusiasm.' "'of which the Duke of Buccleuch gave us most pleasing instances, "'he having been in the very thick of the crowd "'and among the lowest of the low. "'Her feelings during several days "'had been growing more and more emotional, "'and when the time came for the young couple to depart, "'she very nearly broke down, but not quite. "'Poor dear child,' she wrote afterwards, "'I clasped her in my arms and blessed her "'and knew not what to say.' i kissed good fritz and pressed his hand again and again he was unable to speak and the tears were in his eyes i embraced them both again at the carriage door and albert got into the carriage and opened one with them and bertie the band struck up i wished good-bye to the good perpunchers general schreckenstein was much affected i pressed his hand and the good dean's and then went quickly upstairs albert as well as general schreckenstein was much affected he was losing his favourite child whose opening intelligence had already begun to display a marked resemblance to his own an adoring pupil who in a few years might have become an almost adequate companion an ironic fate had determined that the daughter who was taken from him should be sympathetic clever interested in the arts and sciences and endowed with a strong taste for memoranda, while not a single one of these qualities could be discovered in the son who remained. For certainly the Prince of Wales did not take after his father. Victoria's prayer had been unanswered, and with each succeeding year it became more obvious that Bertie was a true scion of the house of Brunswick. But these evidences of innate characteristics only served to redouble the efforts of his parents. It still might not be too late to incline the young branch, by ceaseless pressure and careful fastenings, to grow in the proper direction. Everything was tried. The boy was sent on a continental tour, with a picked body of tutors, but the results were unsatisfactory. At his father's request he kept a diary, which, on his return, was inspected by the prince it was found to be distressingly meagre. What a multitude of highly interesting reflections might have been arranged under the heading The First Prince of Wales Visiting the Pope! But there was not a single one. Le jeune prince plaisit à tout le monde, old Metternich reported to Guizot, mais avait l'air embarrassé et très triste. On his seventeenth birthday, a memorandum was drawn up over the names of the Queen and the Prince, informing their eldest son that he was now entering upon the period of manhood, and directing him henceforward to perform the duties of a Christian gentleman. "'Life is composed of duties,' said the memorandum, and in the due, punctual, and cheerful performance of them, the true Christian, true soldier, and true gentleman is recognized a new sphere of life will open for you in which you will have to be taught what to do and what not to do a subject requiring study more important than any in which you have hitherto been engaged on receipt of the memorandum bertie burst into tears at the same time another memorandum was drawn up headed confidential for the guidance of the gentleman appointed to attend on the prince of wales this long and elaborate document laid down Certain principles by which the conduct and demeanour of the gentleman were to be regulated, and which it is thought may conduce to the benefit of the Prince of Wales. The qualities which distinguish a gentleman in society, continued this remarkable paper, are 1. His appearance, his deportment, and dress, 2. The character of his relations with, and treatment of, others, 3 his desire and power to acquit himself creditably in conversation or whatever is the occupation of the society with which he mixes a minute and detailed analysis of these subheadings followed filling several pages and the memorandum ended with a final exhortation to the gentleman If they will duly appreciate the responsibility of their position, and taking the points above laid down as the outline will exercise their own good sense in acting upon all occasions, all upon these principles, thinking no point of detail too minute to be important, but maintaining one steady consistent line of conduct, they may render essential service to the young prince, and justify the flattering selection made by the royal parents. A year later, the young prince was sent to Oxford, where the greatest care was taken that he should not mix with the undergraduates. Yes, everything had been tried—everything—with one single exception. The experiment had never been made of letting Bertie enjoy himself. But why should it have been? Life is composed of duties. What possible place could there be for enjoyment in the existence of a Prince of Wales? The same year which deprived Albert of the Princess Royal brought him another and still more serious loss. The Baron had paid his last visit to England. For twenty years, as he himself said in a letter to the King of the Belgians, he had performed the laborious and exhausting office of a paternal friend and trusted adviser to the Prince and the Queen. He was seventy. He was tired, physically and mentally. It was time to go he returned to his home in Cobourg, exchanging once for all the momentous secrecies of European statecraft for the little tattle of a provincial capital and the gossip of family life. In his stiff chair by the fire he nodded now over old stories, not of emperors and generals, but of neighbors and relatives and the domestic adventures of long ago, the burning of his father's library, and the goat that ran upstairs to his sister's room and ran twice round the table and then ran down again dyspepsia and depression still attacked him but looking back over his life he was not dissatisfied his conscience was clear i have worked as long as i had strength to work he said and for a purpose no one can impugn the consciousness of this is my reward the only one which i desired to earn apparently indeed his purpose had been accomplished. By his wisdom, his patience, and his example, he had brought about in the fullness of time the miraculous metamorphosis of which he had dreamed. The prince was his creation. An indefatigable toiler, presiding for the highest ends over a great nation, that was his achievement, and he looked upon his work, and it was good. But had the baron no misgivings, Did he never wonder whether, perhaps, he might have accomplished not too little, but too much? How subtle and how dangerous are the snares which fate lays for the wariest of men! Albert certainly seemed to be everything that Stockmar could have wished—virtuous, industrious, persevering, intelligent. And yet—why was it? All was not well with him. He was sick at heart for, in spite of everything, he had never reached to happiness. His work, for which at last he came to crave with an almost morbid appetite, was a solace and not a cure. The dragon of his dissatisfaction devoured with dark relish that ever-growing tribute of laborious days and nights, but it was hungry still. The causes of his melancholy were hidden, mysterious, unanalyzable, perhaps— too deeply rooted in the innermost recesses of his temperament for the eye of reason to apprehend. There were contradictions in his nature, which, to some of those who knew him best, made him seem an inexplicable enigma. He was severe and gentle. He was modest and scornful. He longed for affection, and he was cold. He was lonely, not merely with the loneliness of exile, but with the loneliness of conscious and unrecognized superiority. He had the pride, at once resigned and overweening, of a doctrinaire, and yet to say that he was simply a doctrinaire would be a false description, for the pure doctrinaire rejoices always in an internal contentment, and Albert was very far from doing that. There was something that he wanted, and that he could never get. What was it? Some absolute? Some ineffable sympathy? Some extraordinary, some sublime success? Possibly it was a mixture of both. To dominate and to be understood. To conquer by the same triumphant influence the submission and the appreciation of men. That would be worthwhile indeed. But, to such imaginations, he saw too clearly how faint were the responses of his actual environment. Who was there who appreciated him, really and truly? Who could appreciate him in England? And, if the gentle virtue of an inward excellence availed so little, could he expect more from the hard ways of skill and force? The terrible land of his exile loomed before him a frigid and impregnable mass. Doubtless he had made some slight impression. It was true that he had gained the respect of his fellow workers, that his probity, his industry, his exactitude, had been recognized that he was a highly influential and extremely important man. But how far, how very far was all this from the goal of his ambitions? How feeble and futile his efforts seemed against the enormous coagulation of dullness, of folly, of slackness, of ignorance, of confusion that confronted him. He might have the strength or the ingenuity to make some small change for the better here or there, to rearrange some detail, to abolish some anomaly, to insist upon some obvious reform. But the heart of the appalling organism remained untouched. England lumbered on, impervious and self-satisfied, in her old intolerable course. He threw himself across the path of the monster with rigid purpose and set teeth, but he was brushed aside. Yes, even Palmerston was still unconquered, "'was still there to afflict him with his jauntiness, "'his muddle-headedness, his utter lack of principle. "'It was too much. "'Neither nature nor the baron had given him a sanguine spirit. "'The seeds of pessimism once lodged within him "'flourished in a propitious soil. "'He questioned things and did not find "'one that would answer to his mind, "'and all the world appeared unkind. He believed that he was a failure, and he began to despair. Yet Stockmar had told him that he must never relax, and he never would. He would go on, working to the utmost and striving for the highest, to the bitter end. His industry grew almost maniacal. Earlier and earlier was the green lamp lighted, more vast grew the correspondence, more searching the examination of the newspapers, the interminable memoranda more punctilious, analytical, and precise. His very recreations became duties. He enjoyed himself by timetable, went deerstalking with meticulous gusto, and made puns at lunch. It was the right thing to do. The mechanism worked with astonishing efficiency, but it never rested, and it was never oiled. In dry exactitude, the innumerable cogwheels perpetually revolved. No, whatever happened, the prince would not relax. He had absorbed the doctrines of Stockmar too thoroughly. He knew what was right, and at all costs he would pursue it. That was certain. But alas, in this our life, what are the certainties? In nothing be overzealous, as an old Greek— The due measure in all the works of man is best, for often one who zealously pushes towards some excellence, though he be pursuing a gain, is really being led utterly astray by the will of some power which makes those things that are evil seem to him good, and those things seem to him evil that are for his advantage. Surely both the prince and the baron might have learnt something from the frigid wisdom of Theognis. Victoria noticed that her husband sometimes seemed to be depressed and overworked. She tried to cheer him up. Realizing uneasily that he was still regarded as a foreigner, she hoped that by conferring upon him the title of Prince Consort, 1857, she would improve his position in the country. "'The Queen has a right to claim that her husband should be an Englishman,' she wrote. But unfortunately, in spite of the royal letters patent, Albert remained as foreign as before, and, as the years passed, his dejection deepened. She worked with him, she watched over him, she walked with him through the woods at Osborne, while he whistled to the nightingales as he had whistled once at Rosenau so long ago. When his birthday came round, she took the greatest pains to choose him presents that he would really like. In 1858, when he was thirty-nine, she gave him "'a picture of Beatrice, life-size, in oil by Horsley, "'a complete collection of photographic views of Gotha "'and the country round, which I had taken by Bedford, "'and a paperweight of Balmoral granite and deer's teeth, "'designed by Vicky.' "'Albert was, of course, delighted, "'and his merriment at the family gathering "'was more pronounced than ever, and yet... "'what was there that was wrong?' "'No doubt it was his health.' HE WAS WEARING HIMSELF OUT IN THE SERVICE OF THE COUNTRY, AND CERTAINLY HIS CONSTITUTION, AS STOCKMAR HAD PERCEIVED FROM THE FIRST, WAS ILL-ADAPTED TO MEET A SERIOUS STRAIN. HE WAS EASILY UPSET. HE CONSTANTLY SUFFERED FROM MINOR AILMENTS. HIS APPEARANCE IN ITSELF WAS ENOUGH TO INDICATE THE INFIRMITY OF HIS PHYSICAL POWERS. The handsome youth of twenty years since, with the flashing eyes and the soft complexion, had grown into a sallow, tired-looking man whose body, in its stoop and loose fleshiness, betrayed the sedentary laborer, and whose head was quite bald on the top. Unkind critics, who had once compared Albert to an operatic tenor, might have remarked that there was something of the butler about him now. Beside Victoria he presented a painful contrast. She, too, was stout, but it was with the plumpness of a vigorous matron, and an eager vitality was everywhere visible, in her energetic bearing, her protruding, inquiring glances, her small, fat, capable, and commanding hands. If only by some sympathetic magic she could have conveyed into that portly, flabby figure, that desiccated and discouraged brain, a measure of the stamina and the self-assurance that were so preeminently hers.' but suddenly she was reminded that there were other perils besides those of ill health. During a visit to Cobourg in 1860, the prince was very nearly killed in a carriage accident. He escaped with a few cuts and bruises, but Victoria's alarm was extreme, though she concealed it. "'It is when the queen feels most deeply,' she wrote afterwards, "'that she always appears calmest.' and she could not and dared not allow herself to speak of what might have been, or even to admit to herself, and she cannot and dare not now, the entire danger, for her head would turn. Her agitation, in fact, was only surpassed by her thankfulness to God. She felt, she said, that she could not rest without doing something to mark permanently her feelings, and she decided that she would endow a charity in Coburg one thousand pounds or even two thousand pounds given either at once or in installments yearly would not in the queen's opinion be too much eventually the smaller sum having been fixed upon it was invested in a trust called the victoria stift in the name of the burgomaster and chief clergyman of coburg who were directed to distribute the interest yearly among a certain number of young men and women of exemplary character belonging to the humbler ranks of life. Shortly afterwards, the Queen underwent for the first time in her life the actual experience of close personal loss. Early in 1861, the Duchess of Kent was taken seriously ill, and in March she died. The event overwhelmed Victoria, With a morbid intensity, she filled her diary for pages with minute descriptions of her mother's last hours, her dissolution, and her corpse, interspersed with vehement apostrophes and the agitated outpourings of emotional reflection. In the grief of the present, the disagreements of the past were totally forgotten. It was the horror and the mystery of death, death, present and actual, that seized upon the imagination of the queen. Her whole being, so instinct with vitality, recoiled in agony from the grim spectacle of the triumph of that awful power. Her own mother, with whom she had lived so closely and so long that she had become a part almost of her existence, had fallen into nothingness before her very eyes. She tried to forget, but she could not. Her lamentations continued with a strange abundance, a strange persistency— it was almost as if by some mysterious and unconscious precognition she realized that for her in an especial manner that grisly majesty had a dreadful dart in store for indeed before the year was out a far more terrible blow was to fall upon her albert who had for long been suffering from sleeplessness went on a cold and drenching day towards the end of november to inspect the buildings for the new military academy at Sandhurst. On his return, it was clear that the fatigue and exposure to which he had been subjected had seriously affected his health. He was attacked by rheumatism. His sleeplessness continued, and he complained that he felt thoroughly unwell. Three days later, a painful duty obliged him to visit Cambridge. The Prince of Wales, who had been placed at that university in the previous year, was behaving in such a manner that a parental visit and a parental admonition had become necessary. The disappointed father, suffering in mind and body, carried through his task, but on his return journey to Windsor he caught a fatal chill. During the next week he gradually grew weaker and more miserable. Yet, depressed and enfeebled as he was, he continued to work. It so happened that at that very moment a grave diplomatic crisis had arisen. Civil war had broken out in America, and it seemed as if England, owing to a violent quarrel with the northern states, was upon the point of being drawn into the conflict. A severe dispatch by Lord John Russell was submitted to the Queen, and the Prince perceived that, if it was sent off unaltered, war would be the almost inevitable consequence. At seven o'clock on the morning of December 1st, he rose from his bed, and with a quavering hand wrote a series of suggestions for the alteration of the draft by which its language might be softened, and a way left open for a peaceful solution of the question. These changes were accepted by the government, and war was averted. It was the prince's last memorandum. He had always declared that he viewed the prospect of death with equanimity— I do not cling to life, he had once said to Victoria. You do, but I set no store by it. And then he had added, I am sure if I had a severe illness I should give up at once. I should not struggle for life. I have no tenacity of life. He had judged correctly. Before he had been ill many days, he told a friend that he was convinced he would not recover. He sank and sank. Nevertheless, if his case had been properly understood and skillfully treated from the first, he might conceivably have been saved. But the doctors failed to diagnose his symptoms, and it is noteworthy that his principal physician was Sir James Clarke. When it was suggested that other advice should be taken, Sir James pooh-poohed the idea. "'There was no cause for alarm,' he said. But the strange illness grew worse.' At last, after a letter of fierce remonstrance from Palmerston, Dr. Watson was sent for, and Dr. Watson saw at once that he had come too late. The prince was in the grip of typhoid fever. I think that everything so far is satisfactory, said Sir James Clark. Note. Clarendon, Volume 2, pages 253 to 4. one cannot speak with certainty, but it is horrible to think that such a life may have been sacrificed to Sir J. Clarke's selfish jealousy of every member of his profession. Close quote. The Earl of Clarendon to the Duchess of Manchester, December 17, 1861. End of note. The restlessness and the acute suffering of the earlier days gave place to a settled torpor and an ever-deepening gloom. Once the failing patient asked for music, a fine chorale at a distance, and a piano having been placed in the adjoining room, Princess Alice played on it some of Luther's hymns, after which the prince repeated, The Rock of Ages. Sometimes his mind wandered. Sometimes the distant past came rushing upon him. He heard the birds in the early morning, and was at Rosenau again, a boy or victoria would come and read to him Peveril of the Peak and he showed that he could follow the story and then she would bend over him and he would murmur liebes frauchen and gutes weibchen stroking her cheek her distress and her agitation were great but she was not seriously frightened buoyed up by her own abundant energies she would not believe that albert's might prove unequal to the strain she refused to face such a hideous possibility. She declined to see Dr. Watson. Why should she? Had not Sir James Clark assured her that all would be well? Only two days before the end, which was seen now to be almost inevitable by every one about her, she wrote, full of apparent confidence, to the King of the Belgians. I do not sit up with him at night, she said, as I could be of no use, and there is nothing to cause alarm." The Princess Alice tried to tell her the truth, but her hopefulness would not be daunted. On the morning of December 14th, Albert, just as she had expected, seemed to be better. Perhaps the crisis was over. But in the course of the day there was a serious relapse. Then, at last, she allowed herself to see that she was standing on the edge of an appalling gulf. The whole family was summoned, and one after another— THE CHILDREN TOOK A SILENT FAREWELL OF THEIR FATHER. IT WAS A TERRIBLE MOMENT, VICTORIA WROTE IN HER DIARY, BUT THANK GOD, I WAS ABLE TO COMMAND MYSELF AND TO BE PERFECTLY CALM AND REMAIN SITTING BY HIS SIDE. HE murmured SOMETHING, BUT SHE COULD NOT HEAR WHAT IT WAS. SHE THOUGHT HE WAS SPEAKING IN FRENCH. THEN ALL AT ONCE HE BEGAN TO ARRANGE HIS HAIR, JUST AS HE USED TO DO WHEN WELL AND HE WAS DRESSING. Es kleines Frauchen, she whispered to him, and he seemed to understand. For a moment towards the evening she went into another room, but was immediately called back. She saw at a glance that a ghastly change had taken place. As she knelt by the bed, he breathed deeply, breathed gently, breathed at last no more. His features became perfectly rigid. She shrieked one long, wild shriek that rang through the terror-stricken castle and understood that she had lost him forever. End of chapter 6, part 2